Good morning. I'm uh, privileged to be with all of you friends today to talk with you about the scriptures. I just realized with the service change in September, that will give us teachers uh, longer time to preach. So I don't know if you're winning from that deal. I am. But uh, you might have noticed the backpacks out in the atrium. Well, one of the uh, many uh, strengths that comes from a church our size is that we have serious capacity to affect our community. And with school starting up uh, pretty soon, the uh, many schools in the Miami Valley area that City Lights has teamed up with have um, said yes to us helping students from uh, elementary to middle school, uh, getting them the supplies they need. So if you are able to grab a backpack on your way out or grab a few, then uh, do so and fill it with the supplies as determined and uh, bring it back by August 6th and um, uh, affect a kid in your neighborhood. If uh, that's not uh, up your uh, alley, then uh, you can go to PushPay or visit the Info Center in the Dropbox to contribute to uh, the many ministries around here that are affecting Dayton. Uh, yeah, today we are concluding our series we've been in uh, called the New Covenant Review. And so as Paul would have it, of Tarsus. We, uh, we'll talk about the Holy Spirit today, and I want to tell you where we're heading by the end of the message, just, you know, let you know the destination. By the end of the message, there'll be two groups in the room. Either could be Christians. Two groups in the room. The first one, the yes and amen group. Uh, they, they, uh, by the end of the message, you'll hear me talking, and you'll say, yes, I know that person he's talking about. Yes, I, I recognize his voice. And so you'll come to the end of the message, and you'll be encouraged and comforted. That's the kind of the, the point of 2 Corinthians. The second group, I, I'll call the open and curious group. Uh, you'll say, I don't, I don't know if I know that person, but I'm open, and I'm curious. So that's where we're headed. Deal? I was lying in bed um, one night uh, recently, not long ago, about 3 a.m., wide awake, thinking about the scariest most dangerous thing in the Gospels, because it's literally the obscurity of my job to have such odd concerns um, keep me up at night. And I realized the most scary thing in the Gospels, the most dangerous thing in the Gospels, it's not, it's not Jesus saying the gnashing of teeth in hell. It's not the seduction or condemnation of, of Satan. It's not the stone tied around one's neck uh, when one's hurled into the sea after hurting a child. It's not the depravity of sin and the destruction it reaps in your life. It's not the, the wrath of God raging like an all-consuming fire. The scariest thing in the Gospels, the most dangerous thing in the Gospels, is shown by the religious elite of Jesus' day, the Pharisees, the scribes, the, the elders of the law and temple. They show us that it's possible to exist in great proximity to Jesus and not experience his transformative love at all. Living in such great proximity to Jesus and not experiencing his transformative love, it's the scariest thing and it's the most dangerous thing because it'll, it'll destroy your life very slowly and unknowingly, like, like wax melting away from a wick or a frog in a pot. Now Paul, the writer of the passage we've studied in this series, he reasons this much concerning that. If you feel like you've not experienced the Lord and his love, if you feel separated from the Lord, it is because you do not know the Holy Spirit. In place of the Holy Spirit is the void in your life that you filled with the over-accreditation to things that are very valuable, but just not that valuable. 
you see. But look at what Paul says elsewhere. This passage, it's, it's, it's been called the climactic verse, the climactic chapter of the climactic book of the Bible. Would you like to know what it says about your life? Romans 8, 37, 39. For in all these things we have complete victory. Through him who loved us, I am convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor heavenly rulers, nor things that are present, nor things that are to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Jesus our Lord. So perhaps you've heard preachers say or friends say, nothing can separate you from God's love, brother, sister. You have to add that. But according to Paul, that's not actually true. Notice Paul never once says, nothing can separate you from God's love. Paul very, very coherently says, ute tes ketesis, nothing external, no created thing outside of yourself can separate you from God's love. So what does separate you from God's love? If Holy Scripture testifies that no created thing can separate you from God's love, well then why is it God as a person, or perhaps where you are today, God as a notion, sometimes seems far off, sometimes seems impersonal, unbelievable. Why is it that one can potentially sit here and say, well, you know, a covenant is a primitive and obscure thing, and I'm not really sure what it has to do with actually affecting my life. Perhaps you're here today, and the only reason you're here today is that, you know, you're, um, you know, socially, politically conservative, and you just want to raise your kids with Judeo-Christian values. How is it that you can be separated from an all-powerful, all-loving God? Paul reasons. The only thing that can separate you from experiencing the Lord and his love is the propensity of sin in humanity to turn the person of Jesus into a system of religion. The only thing that can separate you from a relationship with the Lord is something deep within with inside of you, within inside of me. No externally created thing, Paul says, except the very thing that humanity has created in history over and over and over and over again to the terrors all the way, to the Lutheran Nazis. This has happened. So the logic of this works the other way around, luckily for us. That is, something even with inside of you cannot on its own accord gain access to the notion of God or a relationship with the Lord. So the only thing that can matchmake you to his transformative love, it's someone who can know you so internally, so deeply, so intimately that you become transformed from the inside out. Religion is the attempt to transform people or societies from the outside in, forcing itself upon the internal. That's backwards, as Paul would word it in his worldview, Christ formed in you. That's your hope out there. This happens from the person, the presence, and the activity of the Holy Spirit in your life, animating your life, like wind to a sail. Two very different things must go together. Now, in the passage of this series, uh, we've studied 2 Corinthians 3. And in that passage, we come to a hard break and flow. If you're following along, if you, you know, have a big Bible with you today, perhaps. Paul goes from a metaphorical use of a historical story. If you're taking notes, that's Exodus 33 and 34. And he turns into kind of a pragmatics of conversion. How do you know you're in or you're out of the new covenant? I know this is Southbrook. You're here probably likely because this is a non-denominational church and evangelically very liberal uh, in the spectrum of the evangelical world. 
Are you even allowed to ask that question? Are you in or are you out? You are. Because the whole book of Acts, Luke is the writer, and Paul here says it's the Holy Spirit. That's the badge. That's the mark that shows whether you're in or you're out of the covenant. Jesus did not come to move covenantal boundaries. He changed reality. Therefore, covenantal legislation consequently had to be reimagined and reworked by a brilliant minds like Paul of Tarsus. That's an astounding theological assertion in one sentence. We'll just have to leave there. I'm teaching a Bible study Tuesday. We can go over all of that if you want to nerd out with me. That's the first two verses. How do you know you're in or out? The second two verses, it reads as kind of like a creed of the Holy Spirit. A creed is beautiful, it's poetic, but it teaches and it informs. And so look to the screen, the 2 Corinthians 3, 15 through 18. But until this very day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their minds. But when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is present, there is freedom. And we all, with unveiled faces reflecting the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another, which is from the Lord, who is the Spirit. So verse 15. But until this very day, Whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over the minds. Here's how I want you to think of that verse today, okay? In my, in, in my own language. In the 21st century West, when Christianity or the Bible is considered, the truth of the matter is often concealed to the one engaging with it. In Dayton, Ohio, when Christianity or the Bible is considered, the truth of the matter is often concealed to the one engaging with it. What is the concealing? That's the question. What is it? as Paul says, is the veil which lies over the heart. Now, the common minutiae I've found of this veil, this veiling in Dayton, Ohio, in the 21st century West, it's three accusations towards Christianity. And they are, one, its claims to moral authority. Two, the nature of exclusivism. Three, uh, its supernatural quality. Now, each of these three things so you know these are important and necessary things to wrestle with, but honestly, if you give me 15 minutes with a legal pad of paper and a pen, I can reasonably justify them away, because this is why. They're intellectual items only, and you're humans. You're not AI machines. So a veil does not lie over the mind. The concealing of the Lord, it's not a matter of intellect as many would wish it to be. What does Paul say? A veil lies over the heart. Something deeper. Something more than the mere cognitive makeup of the person, but your very soul, your very beinghood. It's the part of you that loves a good story. It's the part of you that points towards eternity. Paul says a veil lies over the heart, just as it did for Israel. Israel always gets too bad of a rap from us modern Bible readers, and it would uh, do us well to remind ourselves that Paul in uh, Romans 1 through 3 and also uh, verse, uh, chapter 15 as well, probably. Um, he reminds us that us Gentiles here uh, are just as much to blame of screwing up this whole thing as Israel is. So um, don't get too far ahead of yourself, Paul says. But let me say this concerning Israel's veil and yours. Paul states that the glory revealed to Moses and through Moses, Israel's leader and giver of the law, the old covenant, it was so great, it was so fierce, so transformative that Israel couldn't look at it. It overwhelmed them to the point they had to look away. 
Have you ever received a gift that was so generous that you felt red with embarrassment to receive it? Have you ever been so loved you felt within your heart reasons to justify why it was wrong, why you should run, why it should be denied? Perhaps you ended a relationship because it was too loving, it was too self-giving, and you didn't feel like you deserved such a love because you've never felt worthy of such a love. And your heart was hardened all the more. And you return to the only thing you've ever known, the concealed, hiddenness, veiling of your own manufactured safeness, because deep down, you believe all your regrets, they're not adequate to exist with such a gift, such a love. And you're beginning to understand Israel, how great it is, and a new covenant has come. The new covenant is a greater glory than an already great glory. In the New Covenant, you're not given an ideology from the academies of this age. You're not given a hope hard to believe in. You're not given a philosophy that's too intellectually incredible or a promise that seems too good to be true. In the New Covenant, what are you given? You're given a man who knows you so intimately, who knows your sins so deeply in the worst of ways that he's done for you more than you can ask or imagine. And therefore, he has done for us more than we could ask or imagine. As Jean Valjean would say in removing his veil, take an eye for an eye, turn your heart into stone. This is all I've lived for. This is all I've ever known. One word from him and I'd be back. Beneath, beneath the lash, upon the rack. Instead, he offers me my freedom. I feel my shame inside me like a knife. He told me I have a soul. How does he know? What spirit comes to move my life? Is there another way to go? So if any of that seems true, you're beginning to understand the story of the Lord's love for Israel and for you. You see, the essence of Paul's new covenant theology it was prophesied in the story of Hosea, a little brief story. Hosea was a prophet called by the Lord. And the Lord gives Hosea a deep, undying love for a woman of the night. And the story goes that this woman who becomes Hosea's wife, she continues in her of the nightness, you'll say. But Hosea, because of his deep undying love, he always takes her back. And the wife always runs. And he always takes her back. And this is all to illustrate the Lord's love for his people, his bride, you. And the rest of the book of Hosea, like 13 chapters, spoiler alert, it accomplishes three things. These three things are, one, it shows just how fractured the relationship is between the Lord and his people. Number two, just how much that fracturing grieves the Lord. And number three, the Lord's faithfulness is greater than your unfaithfulness. That the power and grip of mankind's sin is but a brittle bite to the might of the Lord's glory and love. Because you see, in the last chapter of Hosea, the Lord promises you, I will heal their unfaithfulness. I will love them freely. The Lord is faithful and his word is true. What I'm stating, I'm not asserting lightly. It's come as the result in my life of serious theological wrestling with the scriptures, uh, Isaiah 5, Exodus 23 to Romans 4, 5, and a lot of sleepless nights and a lot more scripture in between that I've come to say to you today what I'm convinced of and what I'm sure of. The faithfulness of the Lord is not greater than your unfaithfulness. It's that simple. 
The story of the Old and New Covenants is not a story concerning the quantity of Israel's faithfulness or the quantity of your faithfulness, but the quality of the Lord's faithfulness. It was not your faithfulness that prayed in the garden that night. It was not your faithfulness that had a philosophy to debate with a Roman prefect, T. Estin Alethea, what is truth? It was not your faithfulness that took ridicule from your own people, saying, give us Barabbas. It was not your faithfulness that was to the pain and humiliation of the cross. No, it was by his faithfulness alone that the Father said to the Son, rise up. And so there's a man or woman I'm speaking to here today the compensating for your insecurities, they're not greater than the Lord's faithfulness. His love can transform you. There's a man or woman I'm speaking to today. Your queerness is not greater than the Lord's faithfulness. His love is jealous for you and it's running after you. To the man or woman here today, they grew up with a cold, loveless religion and it's God. That's not the Lord I'm speaking of. The Lord I'm speaking of, his faithfulness, it's greater than your unfaithfulness. You understand now what we just sang, grace upon grace, morning after morning, day after day. Now, in Hosea 14, there's a remarkable and scandalous claim that's made about your life. It claims that the thing you desire most, freedom from shame, freedom from guilt in your past, freedom from the anxiety of your future, can be yours freely. The thing you want most can be yours freely. How? Verse 16. But when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. Paul, all over his writing, indirectly, indirectly states that when the gospel is preached, salvation happens at that very moment. Hynika is the, con the conjunction that Paul uses. It is, it is the precise moment of instance. A person has ears to hear the gospel. Something unexplainable happens in that heart forever. And I want to draw your attention to the fact that Paul says, he uses an aorist verb. It's an unrepeatable event in history, a one-time action. He says, turn to the Lord. Not accept the Lord, not possess the Lord, as if he was not a reality in your life before, but now he is at your own autonomy. He says, turn to the Lord. Paul's not saying you're in an art gallery full of paintings. And the gallery director brings you in a painting that is available for your purchase at the right price, at your discretion. The process Paul gives to elaborate on the illustration, on the parable, is that you're an art connoisseur. And you're in an art gallery, a bare, white-walled art gallery with exposed industrial ceiling and concrete floors of an urban loft, a cacophony of a Brooklyn-based shoegaze band of hip voices and pretentious people who are entirely too self-aware, drinking cocktails instead of beer because they want to stay skinny. And you've always wondered what the purpose of this whole get-together served anyway, and do I even have a place in it? But you come to realize that not far, not far from you, just over your shoulder, in the corner of your eye, there's an easel with a sheet over it. And you realize it's actually been there all along. And you can't help but be curious at what's underneath the sheet. And your eyes become averted from the conversation you're in with someone subtly bragging about how great their life is and all the traveling they've been doing lately. And the art gallery comes, art gallery director, they come up to you and they ask you, something interests you? At that precise moment of instance, the gallery director unveils the sheet. And as what is contained within the frame on the easel is revealed, 
everything you ever knew or thought you knew about the elements of design and grayscales and color theory, it's insignificant. Because it is the very painting that you've, you've searched for your whole life, but you didn't quite know it. But not merely because of the desirability of its craftsmanship. There's something so familiar about it. It's like something that you lost in your childhood or some thieved thing from your adolescence. And the art gallery director says, well, look here, pointing to the bottom corner of the painting where the inscription is addressed to you. It was painted for you. It's yours. It belongs to you. Freely. And your conscience reasons why, for what? The gallery director says, I can introduce you to the artist who made it for you if you'd like. The very thing you want most in life, freedom, can be yours. Freely. Freedom is what you want. I'm not suggesting freedom is what you want. I'm telling you, freedom is what you want. From my view, and I have quite the view up here, the, uh, the demographic majority in this room is largely uh, 40s, 50s, middle, upper class, white Ohioans. But when I say free at last, free at last, thank God Almighty, we are free at last, your heart says yes. That is truth. Yes, that is what I want. Yes, that is somehow a part of my, my, my nature. Yes, freedom is fundamental to human dignity. However, although the majority of you feel that way, the majority of you are not a black man or woman who lived in the segregated American South in the 1960s. So why? I'll tell you why. Galatians 5.1. The whole thing. What is it about? Freedom. That's why Christ set you free. It is for freedom Christ set you free. He knows you better than you. How does it happen? How do you do that? By the work of the Holy Spirit. Verse 17. Now the Lord is the Spirit. And where the Spirit of the Lord is, the Lord is present. There is freedom. The Holy Spirit, he's not a power. He's a person of the perfect triune community of God. The Holy Spirit's not a force. He is the exact source of your relationship with the love of the triune God through Christ Jesus. It is only through the Holy Spirit that you get what you desire most, freedom. You see, without the Holy Spirit, you can be Christian and you can have a proximity to Jesus. You can have Christian morals, Christian beliefs, Christian practices. And you have religion nicely compartmentalized in your life. You have great proximity to Jesus. But apart from the Holy Spirit's active presence in your life, transforming you from the inside out, you can be Christian, but potentially your self-worth is still indebted to your work. Your children are still your idol. Your sexuality can be just as untamed as when you were 19. Because apart from the Holy Spirit, you can be Christian, and, and DraftKings determines the financial course of your life. Apart from the Holy Spirit, you can be Christian and still the deepest devotion, the object of the deepest devotion of your life, your faith, your trust, is in the God of American nationalism. Without the Holy Spirit, your life can be controlled by the anger and fear from resentments of things in your past. It's only through the Holy Spirit that marriages are healed, that households stay together, 
traumas healed, grief is resolved. I'm not, I, those, that's not, none of that's a list of external don'ts. These are simply the, 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 the things that I've seen as a pastor of a heart not set free. Not set free by the Lord's love through the Holy Spirit, the advocate of your freedom. They're the honest misattempts at a sense of freedom that keeps us living with a dangerous, dangerous, dangerous proximity to Jesus, just like the Pharisees. You see, you're sitting in church or you read, a, you read something in the Bible and you, some, they say something about your finances, says something about your sexuality, says something about your social political uh, opinions, says something about that forgiveness that you have not offered to someone. And, well, I don't, I don't know if that's, well, I, that's the Holy Spirit telling you. Just like the Pharisees. What did Jesus teach? What, what pissed off the Pharisees? Financial teachings, uh, sexual teachings, teachings on divorce, uh, teachings on their Zionistic uh, nationalism, and forgiveness. That's what pissed off the Pharisees. We're no different. It's the scariest place to be. And I'm not teaching you something that wasn't first taught to me when I examined this passage and it examined my heart. The only hope I have for treating my wife with respect when we're in a knockdown, drag out argument, the only hope that I have for treating my kids with gentleness when they're being little turds, the, uh, the Holy Spirit's the only hope you have. It's, only, it's, it's all you got. That's what the whole book of Acts is at. How does, what's the dividing line? Holy Spirit. I was walking into the kitchen the other day, and um, this week, actually, and uh, my son said a four-letter word. And, uh, like, the amount of things that I care about my, in my life that are not my son cussing, it's, like, astounding how much I don't care my son swears. Many of you know my son. He's the, he's the most polite 11-year-old boy, and mild-mannered 11-year-old boy you'll ever meet. I really don't care. But when that boiling water from the pasta hit his hand in the sink, and he said that four-letter word, and it's not as nice of one as you think he said, I wondered, well, where did he learn that word? That's right, his mom. <laughs> we all need the Holy Spirit within us, transforming us from the inside out. How? How? How do you do that? This is all very nice ideas. How? Romans 8. Paul's exposition of the work of the Holy Spirit. There's never been a preacher anywhere ever who's preached on the Holy Spirit and uh, not referenced Romans 8. This is my second time already doing it in the message. So here are three quick, three really quick points of what you need to know about the Holy Spirit and his work to transform your life today. Number one, introduction. Number two, sanctification. Number three, testimony. Number one, introduction. The Holy Spirit introduces you to Jesus. Romans 8 says the Holy Spirit is the mediator between you presently and the eternally resurrected incarnate Christ existing in the age to come. The Spirit shows you what Jesus is like through the hearing of the preaching of his word, through the community of his body, through the reading of Holy Scripture, prayer, the sacraments, and the spiritual disciplines. In fact, it is by, by faith, if you're of by faith, the Holy Spirit is the person of the community of God that you know best this side of heaven. Because the Holy Spirit is like a matchmaker in a romance. Uh, nearly a decade ago, I was having dinner with one of my best friends, and I was going on and on and on and on, and on about this beautiful girl I saw with these long legs. And the more I spoke about her to him, he finally exclaimed, shit, dude, I know who she is. And for the coming weeks, my friend was the way I knew her until I met her and I married her. 
And as the art gallery director says to the art connoisseur, well, would you like to meet the artist? So the Holy Spirit says to you. Number two, sanctification. Romans 8 speaks to the purifying work the Spirit does in us, not being purified by the law, purified by the Spirit. Paul gives parental imagery for the sanctifying work the Spirit does in our lives. Now, we often think of maturity as growing older, something you just get when you get older, but everyone who's seen a man in his midlife crisis knows age does not necessitate wisdom, does it? Romans 8 shows that sanctification, living godly, living blamelessly, it's not the process of aging, it's the process of de-aging, becoming like a child, as our Lord would say. You see, everything in this age that we live in, it's backwards. But in the age of heaven, everything's reversed. Those of you who have young kids, do you know, here's something entirely sad for you, do you know that there will be a time when you set down your child and never pick them back up again for the rest of their life? How sad that. Romans 8.15 says, our, the spirit cries out with our spirit, Abba, Daddy, Father, to God, because we are his children. This is his sanctification beginning in our lives, his transformative love. The reason Jesus said, you must become like children to enter the kingdom, Matthew 18, it's, it's not because children are carefree and happy. That's an over-moralized, all-too-common teaching. Historians estimate that nearly half of infants died in their infancy in the Roman Empire. And the, the rate did not improve much for toddlers. The reason Jesus said this is because children were wholly dependent upon their, their parent. Whole, their entire livelihood, even, even, if they were even if they had them, they still might have died. Sanctification is the process of us becoming less dependent upon ourselves, law, religion, cultural platitudes of signs you stick in your front yard, code, and the more dependent upon the Father, the Spirit, through his word. Sanctification is the reversal of you sitting down your child forever. It is the process of the Father picking you up forever. Do you want that? Here's how. Number three, testimony. This is the deal maker. This is what, this is what, the, this is what the new covenant's all about. This is how you're free. Romans 8.16 uses a legal judicial term that says the Holy Spirit, data form, testifies with us and to us that we belong to the Lord. In the whole book of Romans that we're going to study for the next year, have this in mind. Paul paints a picture of a, through, through Roman legal jargon, he paints a picture of a divine cosmic courtroom where humanity stands condemned for either intentionally, ignorantly, or implicitly engaging with sin, concerning which a being named the accuser in Hebrew, the Satan, is the prosecuting attorney, condemning humanity. And in Romans 14, Paul says, we will all stand before the judgment seat of God someday, but a greater being has come. The greatest being, the third person of the Holy Trinity, our defense attorney, testifying on our behalf, having been justified by grace through faith, this man, this woman, has the blood on the lamb on their head. They are imputed, righteousness. And therefore, the Spirit also testifies to us, that our unfaithfulness, it's not greater than the Lord's faithfulness. You must come to terms with the fact, friends, that you're not here today by accident. We believe at Southwark, there's no normal Sundays. And the Lord has brought you here today, and the Holy Spirit is testifying to you that the regret of that thing you did long ago found its end at the cross. You're free. The Holy Spirit's testifying to you that the shame of that thing that was done to you 
all those years to go, it, it found its end at the cross. You're free. It is indeed for the purpose that Christ has set us free. And this is why Paul concludes his little creed that we are all here together with the Lord, verse 18. And we all, with unveiled faces, reflecting the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another, which is from the Lord, who is the Spirit. So to the first group, the yes and amen group, be encouraged from this. This new covenant you have in Christ, look around the room, all the unveiled faces, who know the Spirit, like you, like Moses, who know their Lord as one knows a friend, and are actively being transformed, practicing for resurrection. This is the standard of the new covenant. Be at peace with one another, learn from one another, love one another, because Paul would say, in doing so with one another, you're at peace with our Lord, you're learning from our Lord, and you're loving our Lord, who is Jesus, the Christ, reflected from one another to another. The second group, the open and curious group, you must know, I'm an evangelist by heart. It is, it's, 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 it's just within my nature. I can't help it. I can sell an ice to an Eskimo. I mean, it, it's a, and I would try. But today, evangelism was not my intent. I'm not calling you to anything today. Today, I was simply asking you to consider what burdens do you carry and what secrets do you have. Consider the possibility you're not here by accident. In one month's time, this message starts the momentum for one month's time. I will be standing here again on baptism weekend. And on that day, the Holy Spirit will be calling you. And on that day, I can promise you, I will be evangelizing on that day. Not today. In a month. Bring your doubt. Bring a friend. I'm going to give you everything I got to call you across the finish line. And when you do, the church is going to celebrate your freedom. Not today. You're not here by accident. The Holy Spirit wants you to meet Jesus. Would you like to meet him? Let's pray. Lord, thank you for this series. Um, it came at the right time for me and I think many others. And now as we approach your table, you said in Luke 22 and 1 Corinthians 11, this is, this is the symbol of my new covenant with you. The body and blood. And um, Holy Spirit, uh, do your work. In Jesus' name, an empty tomb. Amen.